Father, I'm amazed that you would care about us, children of dirt. The psalmist put it this way, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For you've made him a little lower than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. And we have been honored by you, and we thank you. You gave children of the dirt like us your word. You sent your son to die for children of dirt like us. You've made a place in heaven for children of dirt like us. And we thank you, Lord, that you have deposited yourself, your Holy Spirit, into frail children of dust, the hymn writer said, feeble and frail. And you put your spirit within us. We just can't do anything but say thank you. And we praise you that the covenant we have with you is not dependent upon us, but it's completely and totally dependent upon Christ and what he has done for us. And we praise you and thank you for that. And so that means, Lord, that everything that touches our lives, everything that discourages us, everything that defeats us, everything that is attacking us is important to you as well. And I want to pray, Lord, that for every believer in the room today, would you show them the victory that is theirs through Christ? Would you give them the hope that is theirs through Christ? Would you give them the fruit of the Spirit and the joy of the Lord as their strength? And we pray, Father, that as we think about all the things that we can't handle, that should not defeat us, but it should remind us of how great our God is because that is something that you can do in us, through us, and for us that we could never do for ourselves. And we especially think about salvation, but also we think about day-to-day -day life. And we pray, Father, for your glory, you would bring us to the victory that you want us to have. Teach us the things we need to learn, and let us always be worshipful. Let us always be dependent upon you, and may we be thankful that you hear us when we pray. And all of this to the glory of God, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning, and we are looking again in the sixth chapter of the book of John, and we get into... Uh, an interesting thing here where Jesus does something that even the disciples certainly didn't expect and uh, they really didn't understand exactly what was going on in all of this. And uh, Jesus is quite surprising in uh, so many ways. And so we find him doing things, saying things, and there are experiences that uh, the Lord Jesus allows his disciples and other people to have that uh, they uh, could never have fathomed and they never could have uh, seen it coming and they wouldn't have certainly understood anything like that. And my Kindle just went wide on me, so we'll just have to go to plan B here and give me just a second to find exactly what I'm looking for, the right document. These things used to always work, and uh, now they don't in the most inopportune times, okay? So we're looking at John chapter 6, 
Okay, so if you'll go ahead and turn there, and we're going to read, uh, we're going to go back just a little bit to where we were last week. And you remember after the feeding of the 5,000 with the five barley loaves, the food of very poor people and an undesirable grain, and then out of uh, a couple of sardines, let's call them, some pickled tiny fish that came out of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is able to feed uh, it says 5,000 men, and uh, then in addition to that were women and children, maybe 20,000 people, and then they had uh, leftovers. And uh, the leftovers, when we picture them, and sometimes the drawings we see, we see the disciples carrying these great big baskets. Now, what are they going to do with that? That food is going to spoil very quickly. And it's more than they could eat in a reasonable period of time. Now remember, the baskets that they were carried, they were small bottle-shaped baskets. And uh, they would use that maybe like we would use a backpack on a camp out or something like that. And so uh, a Jewish man, as he would be traveling and be away from his home, he would have that little basket in there and it would have uh, some hay in it. What would he do with hay? Well, he might take it and mound it up and use it for a pillow so he didn't have to use a rock like Jacob did and uh, he also could use it if he's starting a fire well the hay there he can start it with the tinder to get it everything going and then add the kindling and then add the uh, bigger pieces of wood or whatever fuel they were using he would carry that but also in that little bottle shaped basket he would carry food now, food would be important simply because you got to eat when you're traveling. But particularly for a Jew, it would be important because they had to eat a kosher diet. So they couldn't just stop at the local uh, you know, Gentile-run store and get a bacon and egg biscuit or something like that. They had to be careful about what they ate, and so they would carry their kosher food with them in that basket and some have said that perhaps the basket would attach onto their belt or something like that so they didn't have to carry it and that's probably what the baskets were that were filled with the uh, sandwiches that they could carry and so it was another meal for them or maybe a couple of meals we don't know the bible doesn't tell us what the amount was the astounding thing was five loaves and two sardines actually fed all of those people to the point that there was enough left over for each of the disciples to fill up their traveling basket with them and to have food besides that is an astounding thing and so as we see that happening you remember that there, was, uh, there were some people that looked at that and they said, hey, this guy is not like the rest of us. Now, as we said last week, that's a good place to come to. If you can start seeing that Jesus is not just one of the boys, not just one of the gang, not just maybe a little bit better than us, but still pretty much the same as we are, when you start seeing the differences and the supernatural aspect of Christ then that is an amazing thing. It's not always enough to uh, get where these guys were in verse 14, because after that miracle it says, Then these men, when they had seen the sign, that's an important word, that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet uh, that, uh, who is to uh, come 
into the world. What prophet is that? We look back at Deuteronomy, and Moses said, this is a, there's a prophet that's going to be raised up that's like me. Well, these people are going, hey, this guy is different. This is the prophet Moses told us about. And it says then in verse 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived or knew that they were about to, this is interesting, come and take him by force to make him king, he departed and he went into the mountain by himself. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and they got into the boat and uh, they went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. And I'm assuming there they're thinking they were expecting him to meet them at the seashore, not out on the lake, on the water. And then the Bible says that as they went out into the sea, as they were crossing it, then there was a great wind, the Bible says, that was blowing. And so when they uh, had rowed, and I'm going to assume this is very difficult, hard rowing, and this isn't much of a distance for especially the fishermen. They rowed about three or four miles, hard, exhausting rowing, they saw Jesus. Now, normally you would think, oh, great, oh, peace, oh, wonderful, oh, joy. But the Bible says, like so many times when Jesus is revealed, that he was walking on the sea and he was drawing near the boat. Now, stop right there. Drawing near the boat. That means that with all of those men in the boat rowing, Jesus is just walking and he's overtaking them. Isn't that amazing? They were so held back by the wind, but not Jesus. And so he draws near to the boat, and uh, they were terrified by this. They were afraid. And this is uh, more of a word for panic than it is anything else. It's not just a, wow, that's weird. It, it's terrified, terrified on that. In fact, the other Gospels tell us that they thought they were seeing a ghost. Verse 20, But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid, and then uh, John omits some of the other details the other Gospels give us about Peter walking on the water. It says, Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately, look at this, the boat was at the land where they were going. How many miracles took place here? I mean, there's a lot of them. And as we look and we see Jesus as he comes to them in the dark, on the water and everything, uh, we see the glory and the magnificence of Christ. And the reason we want to look at this and the reason that it is included for us in the Gospel of John is when you have a Savior who can walk on the water, who can calm the sea, okay, what kind of problem do you have that he can't handle? And so many times the reason in the Bible that the Old Testament and New Testament people, they, when they prayed, they would go back and they would say things like, Okay, you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that? Now, why did they do that? Well, they were doing that because they were being reminded of the covenant. They were being reminded of the miracles 
that God had performed for the patriarchs and in bringing about the Jewish race and the Jewish nation and all of that. And they were thinking about the greatness of God. Who can create a race of people? Well, you can't. But God can. Who can sustain them? How many times have they tried to wipe out the Jews? Lots of times. And yet they're still here today. How many times has Israel been uh, exiled out of the land of Israel? And yet they are there today. That ought to make you perk up and to say, Wow, God has a plan for them. And he is doing something there. Only God can do that. So when I pray, oh God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm remembering all of his great works. When you find in the Bible, you're the God who created the heavens and the earth. You're the God who raised Jesus from the dead. You're the God who rules and reigns. Why do we do that? Because as we think about those, God gets bigger and our problems get smaller. God gets bigger and our problems get smaller. It's as if we say, Oh God who created the universe, the stars and the planets and the galaxies out of nothing with just a word. I've got a little problem here. And it may be a big problem that is crushing you but until you compare it to who God is and what he has done. See what I mean by that? And so when they are looking at all of this and the people began to say things like, wow, this guy is really something. What conclusion do they come to? Do they bow down and say, he is a God man. He is the son of God. He's the sovereign of the universe. He's the savior. He's the lamb of God. No, they don't say that. Their eyes are open just a little bit and they say, this is the prophet that Moses told us about so many, many, many years ago. Okay? And uh, they're close. This is point number one. They're so close, and yet they're so far away. So close, and yet so far away. You know, that's the way a lot of people, especially in our culture, live. You, you go talk to nearly anybody in Oklahoma City, do you believe in Jesus? Mm, yeah, yeah. I believe. Do you believe that he is ruling and reigning and in control of everything? Not so much. Do you believe that he is the ultimate sacrifice for your sin? I'm not so sure about that. I think there are many ways to God. He's one of the ways to God. I mean, you come up with all kinds of things, what they believe about Jesus. And some of them, I stress, some of them may even be accurate. These people were not wrong in saying that Jesus was a prophet but that fell far short of who he really is and actually is and what needs to be understood. And so uh, there they are, close, but so far away. You know, that could be you this morning, could be an apt description of you. You could be sitting here saying, yeah, I, I believe there's a God and I believe in Jesus. But do you believe in him to the point that you have entrusted your soul to him and you believe what the Bible says about him? That's why we need to study our Bibles to find out who God is and to find out and make sure that we are worshiping the Jesus that is in the Bible because a lot of people definitely are not. Now, there was a, uh, a survey done not too long ago, uh, 2022, by Ligonier Ministries. That's R.C. Sproul's ministry. Some of you will recognize that name. And they did a survey, not among pagans, not among unchurched people, not among Buddhists or Islamists or anything like that, 
They did it among evangelicals. What is an evangelical? Well, you can see on the screen there the characteristics of it so that we would be considered an evangelical church. We certainly believe those things. And so what they did is they surveyed people who belonged to churches like ours. Now, they may have been Presbyterian or uh, uh, another type of church, but they believed these core things about Christianity. And one of the things that is so disheartening about all of this is to think of all the people that sat in churches this morning like ours who would say amen to these or maybe even recite a creed like the Apostles' Creed or something like that. But then when you talk to them out on the street, their beliefs turn out to be very, very different. The street-level beliefs or the truths that they had are not anywhere near what they say that they believe. Now, when we think about these kind of people, you would expect all of them would be conservative, Bible-believing type Christians, gospel-oriented Christians. But 73% of these kind of people believe that Jesus Christ is the first creation of God. Jesus is created? Now, Mormonism teaches that, but not evangelical Christianity. And yet people have that in their minds. And when they are asked about it, they go, yeah, yeah, I think so. He's the greatest and the best creation of God, not the creator. Uh, 56% believe that uh, worshiping alone or with family, that it is just as good as going to church. Now, that has exponentially increased since COVID. Because during COVID, we started doing live stream and we were all going, praise God, we can do live stream. And for those who are watching today, praise God that you can join us by live stream. But not to the point where you would quit going to church. Not to the point where you would violate a clear command of Scripture. Hebrews 10.25 commands you not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. But you're actually to do it more as you see the day approaching. I don't know about you. When I look at our world today, I see the day of Christ's return approaching. And the Bible says more, not less. But so many people violate that and they think that they don't really need that. Uh, 53% agree with the claim that even the smallest uh, sin deserves eternal damnation. In other words, they kind of go, well, God will look and he'll say, ah, not such a big deal. Come on into heaven. Is that what the Bible teaches? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is what? It's death. And God will not allow sin into his presence. I mean, these are the kind of things you can read them there and you can see that this doesn't square up with the Bible at all. And it doesn't square up with what their churches affirm. And so what we have is a lot of people who are walking around saying, I'm a member of X and X church, maybe even Graceway church, but their lives don't match up with that because they don't really believe what the church believes. 
They don't really believe what the Bible teaches. They're like the old Ford commercials of my childhood. Ford has a better idea, and we think we have a better idea than the Word of God. We think we have something better than what the Scripture teaches, and we've rationalized it, we've philosophized it, and we have made it to where it is palatable to us, and we can't conceive of a God who would do this, this, or this, so we change Him. And as the old uh, joke is, that in the beginning God created man in his image, and ever since then man has been returning the favor. We're making a God that is in our image, a God who is like us, a God who is palatable to us, and so we find all of these things that are actually happening, and it is amazing. 55% believe that while everyone sins, people are still basically good 55 percent of people in evangelical churches believing that what happened to the tea in tulip what happened to the idea that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god what happened to isaiah chapter 6 woe is me for i am a man of unclean lips and i dwell in a generation of unclean lips whatever happened to sin we don't think it's all that bad. We don't think it's all that serious. Our sin are just small sins. They're little white sins. They are just inconsequential sins. And yet they caused your Savior to be nailed to a cross. And you had the audacity to excuse them in light of that. How dare you sing in Christ alone who took on flesh... Fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Yeah, but there wasn't any wrath for my sin, because my sin is not all that much. Oh yeah, maybe for the axe murderers, maybe for the rapists, maybe for those who are violent and that type of thing, but not for me. God would welcome me into heaven. You are crazy if you think that's what the bible teaches the bible teaches that all sin deserves the punishment of god and uh, you would spend an eternity in hell if it were not for the lord jesus christ praise his name for his grace how about this one 44 percent believe that jesus is a great teacher a moral example a prophet maybe like these guys said in our text but not god 44%. Now, you wonder why we're not reaching the nation for Christ. You wonder why we're not salt and light. You wonder why we're not voting right. You wonder why we don't spend our money right. You wonder why we don't treat other people right. You wonder why our marriages are not right. Our parenting is not right. It's because we don't believe the Word of God or a significant portion of us don't. And uh, how would you like to go to... Um, a football game and play on a team for the state championship and you have 44% of your players that don't even practice or maybe don't even show up. How would you, would you feel good about that? How would you feel about going to war and when they amass all of the things that are needed for warfare? I mean, you have to have guns and you have to have ammo and you have to have tanks and you have to have aircraft and, you know, you have to have qualified people to operate all of those things. And you've also got to have a food supply for all of your troops. And you've got to have a gasoline supply for all of the um, 
uh, uh, munitions that you use or the uh, vehicles that you are driving or using or flying. And you've also got to uh, have all of that. You've got to have the bullets for the guns and you've got to have the missiles and uh, all of that. Can you imagine what an enormous task it is to get all of that from here to there in order to fight a war? Now, what if you were fighting a war, and I mean, you were fighting for your life and fighting for your nation's survival, and you found out that you could only, uh, 44% of your ammo is not going to be there. 44% of your food is not going to be there. 44% of your munitions are not going to be there. What if you found out that 44% of your troops who are going to be operating those things, using those things, and fighting in there, 44% of them weren't coming? I think anybody would look at that and go, wow, we're in real trouble. Well, when we look at these statistics and we see these people that sit in church and they affirm the creeds and they affirm the doctrines, but they really don't believe them, no wonder we're in such trouble. I want to challenge you to make sure that you, as a member of Graceway Baptist Church, are affirming the doctrines of the faith and you're not just settling for Wow, that was impressive. He must be the prophet that was supposed to come and never going any further than that. That is a sad, sad situation. And that brings us then to number two, the irony of human reasoning. And that's found in verse 5. So when they saw this, Jesus perceived that they were going to make him king by force. Okay, now that's weird. And that's ironic. How do you make somebody a king? How do you take Jesus and make him king? And yet I hear people say all the time, well, I trusted Jesus as Savior in 1978, but I didn't make him Lord until 1984. You ever heard anybody say that? That's impossible. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those are not two separate things. He is Lord or he's not Lord of your life. He's either Lord of your life or you're in rebellion to him. It's one or the other. And uh, when we think about making Jesus Lord, we don't make him Lord. You know who made him Lord? The Father. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. We just recognize it and we submit to it. Now think about this. Here's a guy that raised a paralytic from the dead, told him to take up his bed and walk, and he did it. This is a guy that is able to go and take a, a few sardines and a few loaves of bread and feed 20,000 people with leftovers. This is a guy who is amazing. This is a guy who is confronting the religious system as we uh, saw in the last chapter. This is a guy who is absolutely amazing. And we're going to take him and we're going to make him king? Can I just say this? You don't make Jesus do anything. In fact, we find that Jesus himself said, No one takes my life, I lay it down. It's the will of the Father that I do this, and the Father loves me because of this. You know what that means? The Father didn't say, you're going to die whether you like it or not, Jesus. It's not that. In the council tables of eternity, when the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit planned all of this out, Jesus said, 
I'll do it. I'll agree to die. No one takes my life. I lay it down. I'm agreeing to die. Now you think you're going to take somebody like that and you're going you're to be king whether you like it or not. That's the irony of this whole situation. Who do they think they are? And furthermore, if you're going to make Jesus king, if you are making him, forcing him to be king, I'm going to submit this. He's really not a king. He's just a figurehead. He's just a puppet. And these people are thinking, we can take him and we can make him king. What are they thinking? You think Herod's going to go for that? You think Caesar Tiberius is going to go for that? I mean, do these people have the capability of protecting this kingdom that they're putting up? Or maybe they're thinking, oh, if he can feed 5,000 men plus women and children with just that little bit, then he can handle Rome. Isn't that presumption? That's not the will of God. That's not the timing of God. And yet they think that they can control the plan of God. They think they can control the will of God. And they are thinking they can even control the destiny of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And on and on it goes. People think that poor Jesus, he can't save anybody. He's just outside in the cold knocking at your heart's door. And if you don't let him in, oh, what's he going to do? That's not the Jesus of the Bible, folks. That's not the way it's presented. And these people thinking they could make Jesus king. Let let, let me tell you something else. He perceived their thoughts. In other words, he knew what they were thinking. You think you're going to make somebody who knows everything you're thinking do anything? No, he's always 2,500 million steps ahead of you, isn't he? Because he knows all things. This is ironic. We try to promote ourselves, and we want to be kingmakers, and we want to be God controllers, and we want to, well, it's Abraham and Sarai. Abram and Sarai. Remember, they had a covenant from God that they're going to have a child. And so they decide, well, if God's not going to do it, we'll have to do it. So then Abraham has sexual relations with Hagar and she conceives. Okay, now we've helped God out. Now God can do what he wants to do. Are you kidding me? This is God we're talking about. This is the creator of the universe. This is the one who is, uh, has splendor and glory like we cannot even fathom. And yet we think he needs us and we think we can control him and we think we can manipulate him and we think we can go ahead and give Jesus a crown. And by the way, we're going to force him to be our king. This will take care of those dirty Romans and get the Gentiles out of here and we'll all be fed that's more like a vending machine than it is a king, isn't it? And isn't that exactly what Satan tempted Jesus with in the desert? Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. It's amazing how the will and plan of the enemy matches up so well with depraved human beings, isn't it? And we want to separate all of that. No, it's all working together. I want you to notice here a third thing. And that is the fact that, uh, well, before we get to there, this all just illustrates, of course, Isaiah chapter 55. And it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, that's a good distance, isn't it? So are my ways higher than than your ways. In other words, quit trying to force God's hand. Just trust Him and just follow Him. He'll always do 
what is right and what is best. Okay, number three. I want you to notice here, it's what I call the best of human effort, technology, and thought. Because that is, by the way, what we are trusting in in this culture today. And we think that technology is going to save us. Now, technology does some wonderful things, unless it does that, right? Doesn't always work, does it? Unless it's like last Thursday morning and it does what this phone did, it doesn't always work because it's not perfect. And you find out, too, that what is cutting-edge technology today is not all that great in about six months, if it even takes that long, right? And it only works if it works, and it's a good idea when it is a good idea. And we get that. But when you think about the fact that we think technology is going to save us, in fact, now our planet is so polluted and so messed up, they're trying to figure out ways to uh, get us to the moon or get us to Mars. Like we're going to be able to live up there. Technology will save us. If we can just have an electric car, that will save us. Even though our electrical system can't really contain all of it. And even though the parts come from China... And all China has to do is say, nope, no more, and then we're crippled. I mean, you think about things all the way through, and there are just some things that don't make sense. Technology can't save you. And the best of men's knowledge and skill and ability is always going to fall short. Where am I getting that out of this? I want you to uh, look at the next slide. And uh, we uh, took a picture of this fishing boat. Okay? That is from the first century, the time of Jesus. Now, obviously, uh, they didn't rebuild the boat or anything like that. That's kind of how they found it, and they had to preserve it because the wood was just completely falling apart. But it's amazing. Now, what I want you to see is it's not all that technologically brilliant for us, is it? They had to get in there and row It's not very big. You can see how the wind and the waves would toss it around. And uh, I got to thinking about this. These uh, things, that was technology in those days. That was amazing in those days. That was something that they could make a living with in those days. Wouldn't work very well for us now. Why? It's just an illustration of all technology, no matter what it is, becomes outdated it only goes so far it can only do so much and here we find the disciples they were out there in a boat and it was a boat that was the best made and the latest thing out there and uh, several of the disciples were professionals in all of this they're out there on the sea of Galilee and you notice something so far it's all just kind of natural human effort I mean, we find things here like uh, it became evening and then it was dark. Those things control us. We don't control them. We think about, especially in those days, and we think about the fact that they wanted to go to Capernaum. And as they're going to Capernaum, there's one thing that is a problem. What is it? There's this big body of water. Now, how do we get across that body of water? They can't fly. They can't walk. They've got to have a boat. They are dependent upon the boat. And the disciples in that water, if the boat sinks, they are dead. There is nothing they can do apart from the boat because they can't control any of that. And the wind and the waves would come up. And even in those days, they had certain 
ways where they would observe what's happening in the sky and in the clouds and all of that. I, I think we might be getting ready to have a storm or there may be a storm coming up very shortly or the seasons are changing. It was primitive, but they kind of were able to do that to some degree. Now, in our day where we have so much technology, it's amazing what our uh, meteorologists can do. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you this. They may be able to see it They may be able to predict it, but they cannot, what? Control it. Yeah, they can't do that. And so we find here that the wind and the waves come up, and these guys that were professional, they are rowing, and all they can get is about three to four miles. And uh, so they're scared to death, as we read about it in the other Gospels uh, of the weather, as well as uh, when Jesus came. And notice the other thing, too. It says in here it was dark. How did they navigate? How did they get to Capernaum? Oh, well, that's easy. You're just looking in the light, in the, in the darkness of the night. You just look over on the seashore, and there's a lighthouse, and there's a whole bunch of city lights. Those kind of things didn't exist then. At sundown in those days, you know what happened? The landscape went dark. They didn't have electric lights. They didn't have lights and signs and street lights and all of those kind of things that were burning all the time through the night. They blew out their candle, blew out their lamp, and they went to bed. And it was dark. So how did the disciples know where they're going? They are going on somewhat of instinct and then they also, maybe, maybe through that storm, they could see some of the stars and they could navigate or something like that. It's very, very primitive, but it's the best they had. But how inadequate was it? And uh, the amazing thing as we look at this uh, particular story, we find that they were hindered in their progress and they also were very susceptible to getting off course or any number of things like that uh, happening there. And uh, you kind of wonder here, uh, when you try to take those kind of people who can't control the weather, who are limited by a body of water, who are subject to time and space and the limitations of them, evening and darkness, end of life, all of those kind of things... So how do those people think that they are ever going to force somebody to be a king and get away with it? How do people like that with all of those limitations that they had? And make no mistake, they didn't live back then going, oh, I wish we could live in the 21st century where we could have cell phones and computers and all of that. They had no concept of those things. This was all cutting edge. They thought they were more advanced than anybody in human history And uh, yet, look how primitive they really were. And these people are thinking, we could take him by force and we could make him king. Now, if he can uh, take loaves and fishes and feed 20,000 people, if he can make a paralytic walk, I doubt you're going to take him and make him uh, king by anything else. And yet, we're not all that different. We think that we know so much and our science is so great and we are so detailed. We can look in a microscope and we can see uh, the small, small organisms that are invisible to the naked eye. We think we are so great because we can diagnose diseases and in some cases actually cure them. We think that we are so great because we have telescopes in outer space and we can see other galaxies. I mean, none of these people could do that. 
And yet, what did it lead us to? It has led us, all of that, all of the order, all of the technology, all of the amazing discoveries have led us to the fact of saying, oh, good, there's no God. Nothing to worry about here. And yet the heavens declare the glory of God. And yet we can't see it. Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. And then that leads us to the very last thing that we want to talk about here. And that is simply what I've entitled... The glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what is the amazing thing. The scripture says they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near, overtaking, in other words, the boat. And uh, the Bible says that they were afraid. That's a mild word for it. Very afraid. But he said to them, it is I do not be afraid. Chill out. In other words... And then it says they willingly received him into the boat. And look at this. Immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So here we find that when Jesus is coming along, here's the first thing I want you to think about. The fact that it was evening and the fact that it was dark. That limited the disciples. That was a formidable thing for them to overcome. Let me ask you a question, church. Did that hinder Jesus in the least? No. In fact, they saw Jesus. How do you see in that kind of darkness? He revealed himself to them. He allowed them to see him coming while he was walking on the sea. Now they're rowing and they are sweating and they are exhausted and they're having trouble making headway against the wind of the waves. And here's a man walking on top of the sea and he is gaining on them. That's one of the things that was terrifying them. You think you're going to take that kind of a person and you're going to force him to do anything? And then when you look at the glory of our king and you find that they were terrified, they were panicked by all of this, and all he has to do is speak a word. It is I. Don't be afraid. And then what happens? They willingly brought him into the boat. Jesus changes everything. So I don't care what it is you're going through. I don't care what it is you think you have to handle or what it is you think you can handle with the best of psychology, with the best of science, with the best of technology and all of that. It all falls inadequately at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ because He is Lord and He can suspend the laws of nature anytime He wants to. And there they are, rowing, 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 sweating, exhausted, cramping, and about to give up on everything everything ah and now we see somebody coming and they're walking on water nobody does that and jesus said hey boys it's me and they go oh and he gets into the boat he didn't need to get into the boat he could have kept on walking all the way over couldn't he but they needed him and so he gets into the boat with them and you know what happens when he gets in the boat with them the bible says immediately another miracle The boat is right where it needs to be. And they go, okay, passengers, disembark. And they get off and they're safely on the other side. Do you know that so many times as you go through the storms and the trials of life, you work really, 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 really hard. You're worn out. You're exhausted. There's nothing you could do. 
Sometimes you read in your Bible and the Bible says, here's what you need to do. And you go, oh, I would be terrified to do that. I'm not forgiving them. I'm not going to go and make things right with them. I'm not going to act like that and let them run over me. And we're terrified to obey the word of God. If you would just hear him say, it is I, be not afraid. I know what I'm doing. And if I command you to do something, rest assured, it's the right thing to do. Just do it. Just obey. Just trust Him. And you say, well, I don't see how even Jesus could help this. Well, Jesus can not only walk on the sea, He can calm the storm. He can get in the boat, and then the boat is right where it needs to be. He can change everything in your life. Everything. He has the power to do that, and what He does is always best and always right. Oh, but we're going to take him and we're going to make him king. Are you kidding me? Who do you think you are? You can do nothing except to surrender before him, to bow before him, and to yield your will into his way. And isn't that where our problems usually are? We've got our agenda and we want God to bend his will to ours when God is saying, no, it doesn't work that way. You yield yourself to me. And as our king, we worship and we serve him in everything that we do. So, let's just think about this. Is Jesus your king? And, you know, very quickly, anybody like us or these people that we're serving, oh, oh, yes. Well, is he ruling your thoughts? Is he ruling over your, your marriage? Is he ruling over your parenting? Is he ruling over your emotions? Is he ruling over your morals? Is he ruling over your finances? Is he ruling over your politics? Or is he just for church? Just for lunch? It's in the case of feeding the 5,000. Just for working a miracle and then he goes his own way like with the paralytic. Or is he the king that you love, adore, bow before, and worship, and serve every single day down to the smallest details, all for the glory of God. All right? And so, we find it in there that they were so close, yet so far away, weren't they? They trusted in other things and said, oh, this will be what we need. Boy, isn't this great? And they found them to be totally and completely inadequate. And yet you find when you see Jesus, when you really get to know him and you get to see who he is, what he said, and what he did, you'll find yourself saying there's never been anyone like him. This truly is the Son of God. And if you come to that conclusion, conclusion, then you're going to have to do something with that. And I would say, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How dare I say that? I say it because God said it in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. I say it because of the goodness and the mercy, and the promises of God. Romans 10, 13, For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And I've been a recipient of that salvation and a recipient of that grace. And many of you have as well. Now, are we living by that? Are we living in that? Are we acting like the world and like the disciples? Are we giving the message to the world? Oh, Jesus has some cool things to say. Jesus, you know, is an awesome teacher and awesome philosopher and leader. Or are we showing them by the way that we live, think, and act, and the way we're motivated that He is our King? So if you haven't trusted Him, will you trust Him today? Ask someone around you, what is He talking about? How can I be saved and forgiven of my sins? They'll either tell you or get you to someone who can tell you. And if you are a believer here, are you living like a believer? Think about that. Are you living like it? Or is your life a contradiction of what you do in here and what you do out there? That's a shame on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ when we don't proclaim Him and show forth His glory in everything that we do. May God forgive us and may God transform us. And all God's people said... Heavenly Father, we look at this and we see that there's oftentimes a distinction, a dichotomy between what we say and sing at church and the way that we live, the way we treat our children, the way we treat our spouse, the way we treat our neighbors, the way we're motivated at work, the things that we lust for, the things that we long for, the things that we crave, and the things that we trust in. Lord, may we learn not to have any confidence in the flesh, and that would include the technology made by flesh. May our hope be found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And may we grow in grace and knowledge, grow in our faith, and grow in our trust. Because when we say Jesus is Lord, it's more than a phrase, it's more than a slogan. It is the truth of the universe, the truth of the ages. Jesus rules. Jesus reigns because he is Lord. And I pray for people who don't know that, will they, that they might trust Him today. You would draw them to yourself. And I pray for people who do know that, that they would be awakened to it and live in that way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.